0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So we're going to deal with the doctrine of the Trinity. Thank you, Eddie, for singing that song. That kind of led us into the theme and the topic of that doctrine of the Trinity. Um, So I've been a pastor, a senior pastor for seven years or so, nearing seven years. It'll be seven years in August here at Wilkesboro Baptist and been been on ministry staff for a lot longer than that, a little over 20 years now in ministry. And I, I would venture a guess that of the theological questions I've received over the years, the most common question I've received over the years has had to do with the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, it is a fascinating, wonderful doctrine, but it is a great doctrine meaning that as we looked last week at the transcendence of God and the eminence of God, God's above us, and yet He comes down to be in relationship with us, the doctrine of the Trinity lands in that transcendent aspect of who God is. To think, how could God be one and yet three persons? And what we're going to do tonight is walk through some of the biblical affirmations— that we have to hold. Uh, I'll remind you that earlier this year, as we walked through the doctrine of Revelation, we discovered that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible is God's inerrant word, that it is inspired, that it is authoritative. And so when we come to a doctrine like the doctrine of the Trinity, we frame that from the perspective of this is what God says, and what God says, then we have to accept and receive and believe. And so even though it is really hard for our finite minds to grasp the fact that God is one yet three, the Bible affirms that God is one yet three, and so we have to accept God's revelation to us in the sense of trusting that. I will tell you this. When we finish tonight, I don't think you and I are going to understand the Trinity better than we did when we walked in. We might understand the history Of how the church articulated the doctrine of the trinity. But I'm just going to be frank with you. I've studied this for years. I've taught on this. I have prayed on it. I I pray to God the Father through Jesus the Son. By the power of the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to me wrapping my mind around how God can be one in three. I have to take that by faith. I, I don't. Understand it in the sense of being able to explain it to you in a way that says, Oh, wow, that okay, that makes sense. Now, I'm telling you what God's word says, and that's where we're going to come at it from. Make sense? So, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I'm going to ask you on your handout to note the first statement at the top. In the Old Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity, the blank there is latent or not fully manifest. And in the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity is implicit. If you open up your Bible, or better yet, uh, for ease, if you go to Google or you go to BibleGateway.com or some Bible search tool, and you type in the word Trinity, you will not find the word Trinity anywhere in the pages of Scripture. That word, that term, is not found in Scripture. Now, the concept is there, the theology is there, but when the Old Testament, we say that the Old Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity is latent, we essentially mean that the God didn't declare himself, hey, I operate as one God in three persons. He, ju- he just didn't declare that in a very forthright way in the Old Testament. The doctrine of the Trinity uh, comes under that doctrine that we talked about weeks and weeks ago, the doctrine of progressive revelation Meaning that through the course of biblical revelation, revelation history from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, from the Pentateuch that Moses wrote, all the way through to John's last uh, apocalyptic book to us, God has progressively revealed himself in ways that help us understand who he is and his interaction with us in the world. He gave us more information, or we have more information, as we layer it on top of Old Testament teaching throughout the New Testament. And the doctrine of the Trinity is quite like that. However, what is fascinating is that if you look through the pages of Scripture with an understanding that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see hints and nods and, and statements, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that point to the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me give you five truths that are found in the pages of Scripture that we have to affirm about God that relate to the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? The first one is this. God is one. God is one. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Lord is one. We have to affirm that. We have to affirm that because the Lord says that. This isn't someone's interpretation about what they think God is or who they think God might be. This is God speaking to Moses, telling the Israelites, this is who you need to believe that I am. I am one. The Lord is one. Make sense? So we have to hold that. So anytime we're talking about God, we are talking about God as one. We're not talking about a polytheistic framework. We're not talking about a plurality. God is not... Three gods, there's not a, 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 the, the, the religions of the ancient world, particularly those in and around Canaan were notoriously polytheistic. The Egyptians had deity after deity after deity. The Bible articulates a God that is one. Not polytheistic, not plurality, the Lord is one. So we have to affirm that because that's what the Bible affirms. The Bible also affirms that the Father is God. None of us in here are going to be troubled by that because... The Father in the New Testament, as Jesus identified him, is obviously God in the Old Testament. He's the one that spoke. He's the one that revealed himself. He's the one that, as he revealed his holiness to Moses there on that mountain, and Moses had to put a veil on his face, we're talking about the Father. And Jesus, in Matthew 6, 9, when he taught us to pray, he taught us to pray. And this is beautiful. We won't won't digress too much in, in the Lord's Prayer here. But he didn't say, My Father. I love that, don't you? He is Jesus' Father, but he says, our Father, reminding us that through Jesus, we can call God our Father. Well, the Father is obviously God. And the Bible affirms that, and so because the Bible affirms that, we need to affirm that the Father is God. The Bible also affirms, so that's two affirmations, two truths. The Bible also affirms that Jesus is God. Now, we're going to come back to, to a few heresies and, and people who kind of pushed back against some of these other biblical claims in just a few moments. The, but the Bible affirms that Jesus is God, the Son. The second person of the Trinity is God. How about looking at John 20, 28? 20, 20, 20, this is after Jesus' resurrection Remember, he had appeared to ten of the disciples there in the upper room. And Thomas wasn't there that night. And uh, the, the Thomas's fellow disciples told him that Jesus had been resurrected. And he came and he visited with us and we saw him. And you remember Thomas's comments, why he gets known for doubting Thomas. Unless I see him, unless I touch the, the, the spear mark in his side, unless I see his hands, I'll not believe that he's risen from the dead. Well, that night, Jesus, Jesus showed up, and Thomas was there, right? And Jesus looked at Thomas and said, Here are my hands, and here's this spear mark in my side. And do you know what Thomas said to Jesus? He said, my Lord and my God. Now, Jesus all throughout... All throughout the New Testament had said, there's none good, no, not one. Uh, Only the Father is good in answering questions. He had pointed people to God. He had said to Satan in Matthew chapter 4, you shall worship the Lord and the Lord alone shall you worship. You shall not worship anyone else. Jesus consistently pointed to the Father as God, as the only God, as the one to be worshiped. And yet, After Jesus' resurrection, of course, Jesus claimed deity all throughout the New Testament. We'll spend a lot of time on that when we get to the doctrine of Christ and Christology. But Jesus affirmed his deity throughout his statements in the New Testament. But in that one one, uh, moment, when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, Jesus did not deny that remark, nor did he deny the worship that Thomas gave him in that moment. Jesus... Accepted the reality that he is God and the Bible affirms that without question that Jesus is God. So you have the Father is God, the Son is God, the Bible affirms that that God is one, the fourth affirmation is the Holy Spirit is God. The Bible affirms that the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. Acts chapter 5 verses 3 and 4. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they had sold a field and they were bringing money back to the church. And here's what happened. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Notice that. Lie to the Holy Spirit. Peter's statement. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. Very clearly in Acts chapter 5, Peter equated the Holy Spirit with God, with with absolute affirmation. There are other places that equate the Holy Spirit with uh, a person in the Trinity, other places, the Holy Spirit has attributed the, the affirmations of deity. But very clearly in Acts chapter 5, of course, that's a fascinating story because God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. Um, makes us think twice about being dishonest, especially when it comes to church. Anyway, I'll just leave that, leave that to have its own application in your life. The Bible affirms that the Holy Spirit is God. So the final affirmation that we have to hold from Scripture is God is one. God is one, yet in three persons. God is one, yet in three persons. See that from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. In the baptism of Jesus, Jesus was put under the water the Father affirmed Jesus' baptism by saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. All three persons of the Trinity present in Jesus' baptism. That, that's not the only time that the persons of the Trinity are present or affirmed. It's the same text of Scripture, but it's found there in Matthew chapter 3. Michael Horton has written about this. In Jesus' own baptism, there are not simply three names but three actors. The father who speaks, this is my beloved son, the beloved son who is baptized, and the dove hovers about Jesus, suggesting reference to the spirit hovering over the waters in creation and concurring with the benediction on all that God has made. So God the father is God, God the son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God, God is one, yet three. You okay so far? Clear on what the Bible affirms. So, when did we come about the doctrine of the Trinity, as we hold it in our kind of Protestant evangelicalism today, kind of our framework? Where where did we get there? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity took some time to be affirmed in the church, or at least clarified in the church. There are several reasons for that. Uh, one reason for that is because if you, uh, well, let me let me. Uh, How many of you remember the movie, The Da Vinci Code? Remember that movie? In that particular movie, there's a character, Sir Lee Teabing. He's one of the ones that kind of is walking Robert Langdon through the events that he's got to figure out in The Da Vinci Code. And there's a fascinating statement he makes. He says to Robert Langdon that the deity of Jesus wasn't affirmed until the 4th century. At the Council of Nicaea. In other words, the church didn't say that Jesus was God until the 4th century. Uh, And we're going to come to that in a moment in one of the heresies. The reason it took a while for the church to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity as we have it now is because the early church was trying to survive persecution and did not have absolute freedom throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, the, even the text we're preaching through in First Timothy was written in the eighty sixties. 60s. So the church is at its very beginning in terms of its practice and application and structure. And until AD 312, the church was not free. Christians were not free to be Christians in the Roman Empire. There were times where they weren't persecuted, at least persecuted um, empire-wide. But they didn't have the freedom to simply interact theologically. They didn't have the freedom to gather and work out theological tensions. And so one of the things that is very clear, if you read some of the early fathers, pre-300s, well, you know church history through for the last 2000 years there heresy abounds everywhere there are there are people out there who are saying things that are all sorts of wild there there are some uh, ancient fathers who are claiming to be the incarnation of Jesus another incarnation of Jesus they're claiming to be the holy spirit themselves all sorts of heretical statements but the church couldn't work those out not in a in a large sense because they're being you know put on stakes and burned as lights in Rome. They're being beheaded. They're being thrown to the to the animals in the in the Colosseum. And so the church never doubted the deity of Jesus. Never didn't affirm the clear teachings of Scripture. But it didn't have a chance to work those out until the church was freed. And we can debate whether it was a good thing that the church had freedom after uh, after Constantine kind of gave the church freedom, but it certainly gave the church an opportunity to work things out theologically. And so at the Council of Nicaea and at the Council of Constantinople, the Nicaea was 325, Constantinople was 381. The church was able to gather, the bishops of the church, the pastors of the church gathered, and they worked out these theological tensions that had arisen in the first 300 years of church history or so. And so some of those tensions are related to specific heresies that articulate or try to articulate a position on the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me give you three of those. And they're there in your handout. The first heresy is the heresy of modalism. Uh, Modalism is essentially God in different forms. Uh, One version of modalism uh, would be uh, God revealing himself in the Old Testament as father. God revealing himself in the New Testament as son. And God reveals himself now as the Holy Spirit. Meaning that in the Old Testament, God is Father. He no longer is Father in the New Testament because He's Son. And now God is no longer Father or Son. He's the Holy Spirit. And that's how He interacts with us. In other words, God exists in different modes. He's not one God in three persons. He's one God in different modes in different eras of biblical history. One particular uh, modalist, Sebelius, held that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were merely three ways in which the one God revealed himself like an actor taking on different roles. That's the way he described it. Modalism is a heresy. The Bible never articulates any position like that. By the way, this is a heresy that continues to affect us today. There are some in the prosperity gospel camp that treat God just like this. That he is God the Holy Spirit now. And that's how we interact with him. He's not father and son. He's God the Holy Spirit in this particular interaction. That's modalism. Let me give you a second Trinitarian heresy. That's subordinationism. This is trying to make sense of God. Essentially saying that God is hierarchical. In other words, God the Father bestowed deity on God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. This is uh, trying to make sense of... Who is preeminent in the Godhead? Is there preeminence in the Godhead? Obviously, God the Father is God. And so some of these that held to subordinationism kind of landed at a place that is, uh, is very uncomfortable theologically. Basically making Jesus not God or the Holy Spirit not God, not fully God anyway. That's subordinationism. All this really found its root in what we would call Arianism. This is where a heretic by the name of Arius, and we'll deal with this in detail when we talk about Christology, but a heretic by the name of Arius argued that Jesus was not fully God, that he was of a different essence than God himself. And he made that claim. He talked about essentially that that we could become like Christ in that sense. And so it's really problematic uh, as a heresy for the church. That's really the reason for the Council of Nicaea, that debate, Arianism had spread throughout much of the church. Emperor Constantine called the council and invited them to come together to deal with and address the deity of Jesus. Some of you have heard me tell the story about uh, Bishop Nicholas, the the kind of the legendary story of Bishop Nicholas being Saint Nicholas, being where we get our version of Santa Claus. Uh, there were several on that in that in that debate. Hundreds of bishops were there in that debate. Arius was proclaiming his heresy. Men like Athanasius, who was holding to the clear teaching of Scripture that that Jesus is of the same essence as God. They were arguing for what we would articulate as a clear biblical position on the Trinity. And Bishop Nicholas didn't like the heresy that he was hearing Arius spew. So the legend has it that Bishop Nicholas walked down from that group of that those groups of that group of bishops and walked down to the platform where Arius was and punched him out. And knocked him out cold. Now I, that's a legend, but all our Santa Claus stories are legend. I just prefer the Santa Claus story that Santa Claus is punching out heretics. That's that's just I like that. That helps me helps me deal with Christmas, but I don't know if that ever happened. But that's Arianism. Those are three of the major heresies that took place around the Trinitarian doctrine of uh, of, ha- of how we work out the Trinity. Uh, what do we do with this? Well, one of the things we have to realize, and I, I kind of land with Augustine here. Augustine made this claim many years ago. He said, "I believe in order that I may understand." I've probably referenced that in our teaching here. Some of us would like to be able to come to Scripture with our minds wrapped around a doctrine. We understand it. Okay, now we're going to believe it. Now we're going to accept it. Well, the reason we can't approach Scripture like that is because there are things in Scripture that are beyond our ability to wrap our minds around. We're finite. The God that is revealed in Scripture is infinite. And so, the Bible tells us that we need to accept by faith— It doesn't mean that the teachings of Scripture are irrational. It doesn't mean you close your eyes and and just kind of hope there's something that's true. No, we work through it, but we believe in order that we may understand, not the other way around, not understand in order that we may believe. So what do we do? We take what Scripture says about the doctrine of the Trinity, those implications that are all throughout the New and Old Testament, those pictures, and we hold to them to say, okay, I believe this because the Bible affirms it. Just like if you go to Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let us make man in our image. That's a Trinitarian hint. Uh, Trinity is not a full-blown doctrine at that point, but God spoke to God and said, let us make man in our image. There's a Trinitarian hint. You get into the New Testament, where it's even more explicitly spelled out. The, the book of Second uh, Corinthians, where the, the benediction that Paul says is from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit. How about this Trinitarian hint? When we're baptized. Matthew 28. Let me read this to you. This is is fascinating. So I'll get it right. Matthew 28. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of... Name singular, name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not the names, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, that's, that's exactly the way the text is written. One God, yet three persons within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we may say, how do I make sense of that? Well, we're going to try, but i got to believe it because that's how Jesus left his followers. And when we baptize folks at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, we baptize individuals into uh, or in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Now, uh, some of us over the years have tried to make sense of God with analogies. Okay, there's the egg analogy. Yoke, white, and shell. There's the water analogy. Water is liquid, and it's uh, vapor, and it's an ice form. There's the analogy of the person. For example, I'm a a man, I'm a dad, and I'm a father. So different roles. Uh, Let me just say this. Those analogies are okay in one sense if we're just recognizing that they reflect... The idea of Trinity. The, the basic, general, overarching idea of Trinity. In other words, God is one God, yet three persons. So we're going to talk about the implications of that in a moment. So if that's true, and it is, we should expect to see reflections of that in the world that God is Trinity made. So, if that's all we're doing with those analogies, that's fine. The, the real problem, though, if we use those analogies as an explanation for the Trinity, a real full-on theological explanation for the Trinity, they come up staggeringly short, okay? Because I have three different roles, dad, husband, and I'm a male, but I'm not three different persons living inside, one being, I mean, it just falls short, and, and water is an object. I mean, it doesn't even have personality. So does an eggshell. So be very careful with the analogies. We should be careful with the analogies we use when we're discussing the doctrine of the Trinity. As God far exceeds our grasp and our understanding. So let me leave you with takeaway number one. That kind of moves us into that place. The doctrine of the Trinity declares... The infinite personal nature of God in a way that demands our worship. The doctrine of the Trinity declares the infinite personal nature of God in a way that demands our worship. God does come down to relate to us eminence. He did so in the person of Jesus Christ. He does so presently in our experience by the Holy Spirit coming into our, our midst and convicting us of sin. And ultimately being the one that brings us into salvation. That is absolutely true, but God is far beyond our capacity to grasp. Uh, I've said this before, you've heard it from others, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those doctrines that shouts that from the rooftops of Christian theology. I mean, what God is saying is He's infinite. He is beyond our scope of grasping how He can be one God, declare Himself one God, affirm over and over in the both testaments of Scripture that He is one God yet existing in three persons. I, I don't, I can't wrap my minds around my mind exactly how that is to be. Neither can you. But God said that about Himself, and the Scripture overwhelmingly affirms. That claim, one God, three persons, that drives us to worship. That reminds us, like we learned last week, that we're really small, God is really big, and every time we gather among His people and we have an opportunity to sing and open the Word and preach and learn and grow, it drives our worship because God is far greater than we can imagine. It's a glorious truth and a glorious affirmation. This is part of the reason why why uh, I mentioned several several weeks back the book The Shack that's been turned into a movie it has different depictions of of God in different in different arenas, um, in different different categories. That's why a book that 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 concept is problematic for a whole host of reasons. We won't get all of the problems tonight, but it's problematic in one sense because it makes God so informal that he's not the God of the Bible. I mean, the, the, the depiction in that book and in that movie is not the God testified to in the rest of Scripture. Yes, God relates to us. That is wonderful. He did so by sending Jesus in human flesh. He walked and talked with John. He walked and talked with Peter. He picked Peter up off of the... Uh, when, when Peter was sinking, we're going to spend our summer working through encounters between Jesus and individuals. Let me tell you something. Jesus loves you and cares about you and he interacts with us and the Holy Spirit is relatable and relational. You can talk to God. You can know God. I've spent weeks trying to remind us of that very truth, but let me just remind you, when we enter into God's presence, it will not be walking up to God and giving him a fist bump like he's our pal. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, when people saw God in His greatness, they didn't run up and give Him hugs. They bowed on their faces as if they were dead, because God is other. He is holy. He is grand. And when we lose the picture of the grandness and greatness and glory and holiness of God, we miss something tremendously important about the God that's revealed in Scripture. And, and if you walk out of here thinking, "Man, I..." How do I grasp the doctrine of the Trinity? Be thankful you can't. Be thankful that there's a, there is a very clearly affirmed doctrine in the pages of Scripture that we have to hold, but we can't wrap our minds around. Folks, the only kind of God that can save us and be sovereign is someone that's beyond us. And so the doctrine of the Trinity declares the infinite personal God who invites us into relationship with himself. Let me give you three more takeaways. Uh, so we can be finished. The doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely necessary for salvation. Salvation only works in a Trinitarian formulation. Read Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. Several years ago we walked through the book of Ephesians here at church. And I-, I related this when we walked through that text. God the Father orchestrated and planned our salvation. That's what Paul declared. By the way you should read all of those verses together. In the Greek language it's one long sentence. It's a run-on sentence from Paul. Maybe bad grammar, but excellent theology. Okay? An entire section of Scripture, paragraph there, 3 through 14, is one sentence, where God the Father planned our salvation, sending God the Son to be the one who would purchase our salvation through redemption. And God the Holy Spirit is the one that sealed us and accomplished our salvation. Salvation does not work effectively in the pages of Scripture without the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit work in unity or in harmony, maybe the better word for that, to bring about our salvation. The doctrine of the Trinity, uh, thirdly, gives our prayers meaning and effect. So, who should you be praying to when you pray? Should you pray to Jesus? Should you pray to the Holy Spirit? Should you pray to the Father? Well, probably we should treat our prayers like Jesus taught us to treat our, treat our prayers, our Father who is in heaven. But what if you say Savior? Well, God is our Savior, but Jesus is our Savior. What, what if you what if you say Jesus? Talk to Jesus in your prayers. I just want to tell you something. Jesus is God, so you can talk to Jesus and you can talk to God, right? But. In particular, we pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? Well, you and I don't have access to God in our own righteousness. God doesn't listen to us because we did good today. Okay, he's not, he's not going to accept you based on your own righteousness. We know that to be true. All pl- kind of places in the, in the scripture affirm that. We can come to God boldly, Hebrews chapter 4 says, because Jesus has become our substitute. He's taken our place. He intercedes for us. The reason you and I can ask big prayers of God, and the reason we need to pray bigger than we do, is because we come to God through Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. He takes our place. So, if I realize I'm praying to God, the Father, who does anything and is sovereign and is in control, and I do so through Jesus Christ, who is my Savior and Redeemer and Substitute, in the power of the Holy Spirit, which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, several different places, then that gives my prayer life meaning. It reflects the Trinity in our prayers. It's a beautiful picture. So, the doctrine of the Trinity gives our prayer life both meaning and effect, meaning it gives us the opportunity to know that our prayers will be heard and that God is the one that can intervene in our prayers. Uh, also, that, also, that reminds us of the greatness of God because He can hear your prayers and my prayers and the prayers of millions and millions and millions of other Christians on the other side of the world, praying at the same time or different times, know what we're praying and intervene as such. Small gods can't do that. Only a God who is as glorious as the one testified in Scripture could even imagine to be able to do what God claims to do the pages of Scripture. That's why we need a Trinitarian God. Let me finish with this last doctrinal affirmation or takeaway. The doctrine of the Trinity is necessary for God's self-definition of love to be a reality. First John 4, 7 is actually in my Bible reading today as I worked through the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan. I read through 1 John 4 today and was reminded that God tells us to love one another because God is... Remember the word, the definition? God is love. The word love used there in that text is the word agape, which is other-centered love. Now, here's what Tim Keller says about this. He writes, If God is unipersonal, meaning a a true or an only monotheistic God, as in the construction of God in Islam... Okay? And Islam does not uh, agree with the Trinity. They don't buy in that Jesus is God. It's one of the significant challenges as you evangelize someone who's from a Muslim background. If God is unipersonal, then until God created other persons, there was no love. Since love is something that one person has for another, this means that God was power, sovereignty, greatness from all eternity, but not love. Love, then, is not the essence of God, nor is it at the heart of the universe. Power is primary, if God is unipersonal. But the Bible doesn't claim that God is unipersonal. The Bible claims that God is one, yet has existed from before all of creation, as God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Meaning that from before all creation, God the Father has been loving God the Son and God the Son has been loving God the Holy Spirit and God the Holy Spirit has been loving God the Father. And all of that love relationship inside of the Trinity, the triune expression of God in the pages of Scripture has been going on since before creation ever happened. Why why does that matter? Because folks, if there's one thing we need to know about God for our own relationship with Him to be right and for us to seek the forgiveness that He offers, we have to believe that God loves us. And if love is not the very essence of the God that we worship, then we're going to come up way short of His standard. But love is the very essence of the God that we worship. It is intrinsic to who He is. And it can only be intrinsic to who he is if God is Trinity. So, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. The 45-minute version. There's a lot more to it. Uh, we'll unpack more parts of that, particularly when we work at look at the doctrine of Christ, which will be sometime in the fall or early next spring. Next week, we're going to look at God's greatness attributes... And the week after that, God's Goodness Attributes. And then for that, for our study, uh, for, for this part of the semester, we'll be finished. As I mentioned, we'll come back the last Wednesday night, talk about the State of the Southern Baptist Convention, kind of give a, a big-picture overview of what does it, what does it mean, where, where are we, and some of those things. And we'll take July off and come back the third week, I believe, in August, and pick right back up in the doctrine of God, looking at, uh, I believe we'll be looking at creation and then providence. So those those two weeks in August as we come back. And then move from there to the doctrine of humanity. Who are we? God created us in his image. What does that mean for us? How do we interact with that? So that's where we're headed uh, the rest of this year. I haven't laid out the doctrine of humanity uh, themes and weeks. You'll get to that in the fall. Let me remind you, this is an opportunity for you to be a part of our church mission. Our church mission is to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus by worshiping, learning, serving, and replicating. Worshiping is when we gather together and we praise God and we acknowledge and glorify His greatness. Thank you for singing tonight. We hope as you gather with us on Sunday, you'll sing and worship, and it'll be a participatory worship. Learning is what happens in Sunday school and discipleship groups and meetings like this. We want you to learn. Why? Because there's so much more to know than what God, what we could possibly grasp. That's a good thing. It reminds us of our smallness. It reminds us of God's greatness. He invites us to learn and grow. If you're not in a Sunday school class, let me encourage you to find one. If you can't find one, uh, just, just be patient with us. We've got some new ones that'll be starting at uh, the end of the summer and early part of the fall. We've got a lot of people that, that we want to give the opportunity to plug into some of the Sunday school classes that are happening and will be happening. Keep praying for those groups to take place. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, Let's pray and we'll see you Sunday. Father, we come to you and thank you for your goodness, the privilege that we have to worship you. I'm thankful that as we pray, closing out our study tonight, we pray in the very righteousness of Christ your Son who offered us salvation. Thank you for that. Thank you, Holy Spirit, uh, for being with us, present in our midst, bringing us to a place of conviction and salvation. And Lord God, we know that there are others in our community in our relationship, relational circles that need to know Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would work in their hearts through conviction and the convicting power of your Holy Spirit, that you grant faith and salvation to those who do not yet know you and bring them into a faith relationship with yourself for your glory and for their eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.